Don't Laugh at Me, sings Brett Denon from the Mosaic Project and the children's album, Children's Songs for a Better World. Solution to Violence and our guest today, D.D. Cummings, understand that none of us want to be laughed at and that if we all demonstrate respect for each other, the world becomes a more peaceful place. Welcome to Solution to Balance. You are listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. We are delighted you can join us as we talk with today's guest, children, author, and native little villain, D.D. Cummings. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. We are your host for Solutions to Balance. We are a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is an affiliate of the Lowell Fellowship of Reconciliation. The following is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do this by emailing us at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is children's book author D.D. Cummings. D.D. loves to write and share stories involving her journey along the way as an author. She's a native Louisvillian and graduate of Bennett College. Bennett is a private four-year historically Black liberal art college for women and located in Greensboro, North Carolina. D.D. is an author of 16 diverse children's books. We're going to hear more about those in the next hour. D.D. especially loves encouraging others to follow their dreams. Welcome, D.D. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. It's great to have you join us. We've shared uh, some about your life already, but uh, give us a little bit more we should know about you and your life experience here in Louisville and beyond Louisville. Well, one interesting fact that maybe your listeners will enjoy is that Jamie used to be my teacher in high school. <laughs> I went to the Brown School and he's one of the teachers I remember best. Brown School had a lot of teachers who really cared about their students. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on your radio show today, but Jamie was definitely one of those teachers. But Brown School was a unique experience and my parents were true hippies. We moved to Louisville when I was four years old, the year that uh, busing was enforced in Jefferson County. County. So that was an interesting time for two hippies to move to Louisville. My mom is black and my dad is white. And so they looked for a school like the Brown School because it was a very inclusive and welcoming environment. So those are some of my happiest memories growing up in Louisville are uh, growing up at the Brown School. And I have two younger sisters who also uh, went to the Brown and graduated from Brown as well. And Brown is kind of like a family environment. A lot of uh, people that I went to school with at Brown now have kids that go to Brown School too. And so my daughter, Kayla, she didn't end up graduating from Brown School, but we're going to talk about Kayla a little bit later because I've now written a series of books inspired by her. And she also spent some time at Brown School. So my happiest memories in Louisville are are going to the Brown. And then uh, I haven't spent a whole lot of time living outside of Louisville, but I did go to college to a historically Black school called Bennett College in Greensboro, North Carolina, which was really instrumental in changing my life just for the role model that I was able to see at a, at a school like that. But I did end up coming back to Louisville, which I don't regret. I've met my husband and we have a beautiful family here in Louisville. And, and I've been able to uh, follow one of my dreams of becoming an author right here in my hometown. That's, that's great. So you've now written 16 books for children. Mm-hmm. And what prompted you to be a writer? Oh, it's... It's such a long story, so I'll try to keep it short, but I think a little bit later, too, we're going to talk about self-care.
care. And I haven't done a very good job of taking care of myself over the years because I have spent a long career in helping others. My entire professional career has been in social services. My first job was as a direct care worker at um, Home of the Innocents. And then I spent many years as an investigator with Child Protective Services. And eventually I went on to become a therapist. And I don't, I always make sure to say that I don't pretend to, you know, make it seem like my journey was as hard as any of these kids that I served in therapeutic foster care. But you do live alongside of children in foster care when you work with them. And over time, you know, with disrupted placements and um, promises made that weren't kept, their heartbreaks become your heartbreaks. It's a very, very, very up and downhill journey, much more downhill. And so over time, I started carrying all of just this stuff with me everywhere I went. A lot of misery and a lot of grief and a lot of deep sadness. And a lot of that came from violence and substance abuse uh, throughout our community and the impact that it had on the children that I work with. And these kids in therapeutic foster care are often hard to reach because they're just tired of talking to people. They just don't trust people. And so we would sit in silence sometimes and they would draw or they would write, but they were tired of talking. And so I got a lot of the kids I worked with to start writing their stories, which became exceptionally therapeutic because it really validated their journey and their experience. It was a different way for somebody to listen to them. It was a different way for them to reflect on what they had been through. And and the really special part of it was that they get to write the end of that story. And so while they were writing their story, I started writing some of my own. So not only was it therapeutic for them, but it eventually became therapeutic for me too. And I, I, not as a child, I didn't want to be an author. I never thought about being an author as a child, but as an adult, I often thought about writing a book. And when I started doing that with these kids in therapeutic foster care, I just couldn't stop. And that's how I've ended up with so many books. So the children gave you that incentive to be an author. That's, uh... Yes. Well, and I also saw as a therapist, what it did for them. And I thought, well, it could probably do that for me too. And it did. <laughs> so I started writing also. So, okay, D.D. Cummings, in terms of your writing, is there an overriding theme that applies to all your books? Did you did your experience with children convince you there was something missing from their lives, something that books could make available for them? Yes, hope. Hope is by far the overriding theme in all of my books. It's just very hard when you're living every day and you're just you know, it doesn't matter if you're a child or an adult. We have so many tasks and so many duties at any any age range in America. And especially if you're living in foster care, so you don't really feel like you have a permanent placement. You're not with your family, even when it's a family who has abused you, they're they're still your family and you still miss them. Living with that kind of grief and sadness and pain is often doesn't even allow hope to grow. I've seen kids with zero hope. They don't even understand what the concept of hope is. And so I noticed through reading books that because specific examples of incidents in life that had been negative were turned around, when kids read that in books, they believed it. They could see the path and it gave them an alternative view of hope because they didn't see it in their everyday lives. And because they were in trouble at home, a lot of times they were in trouble in school. They were in trouble everywhere. And so seeing it in a book, especially reading about kids that had trouble, 
gave them a clear path of how they could grow their own hope. And that that's something that I think is definitely missing. And it really honestly has only been made worse by this pandemic we're in. Yeah. Well, your first book, Love Is, was written in July 2014. What is it about love that especially convinced you that this subject is for children? Well, Love Is is a really interesting book because it was kind of like a I was nervous about writing a book and I didn't know if I could even do it. I didn't know if anybody would even care what I had to say. So I had to get past that mental roadblock of caring what people thought I had to say and just write for me. And Love Is was just really a poem. That book is only 73 words long. And it's a poem that just came to my mind and it just stayed with me and I couldn't get it out of my head until I wrote it down. And then I found this wonderful illustrator who's also here, a native of Louisville named Erica Buss, who illustrated the book for me. And so there are some absolutely beautiful illustrations that accompany these 73 words. And what Love Is did for me is it showed me that I could put something beautiful in a book and it didn't have to be this long series of stories or words that were overwhelming. And maybe if I had waited to write more words, maybe I would have never done it. So after I put those 73 words along with those beautiful images in a book and I could hold the book in my hands, then I was an actual author. And so from that point, it was so much easier for me to write my next books. But I think those words love is were on my heart and wouldn't, you know, my mind and my heart wouldn't let them go. Again, because of what I'd seen kids live with, this lack of hope and this lack of being able to find a love that they could count on. And it's just a beautiful story of the simplicity of hope. And I did a book signing at a store one time and a, a, a lady came and she uh, she was like a middle-aged lady and she bought the book for her 20-something-year-old daughter who was going through a divorce. So my picture books are, I know, I know I wrote them, but they're really beautiful. The imagery is gorgeous and the words are precious. And so a lot of times adults do buy my books. They're just not for kids. And she bought the book for a 20-something-year-old daughter. And she told me that she was buying the book because her daughter was going through a bad divorce at that young age. And she needed to be reminded of the simplicity of love. That's like one of the best compliments I ever got on that book. Great one. Well, I have the book and I have thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. Not always wanted to be an author, but uh, was 2014 an important date in that uh, in that time for you in writing? Uh, 2014 didn't really have any significance. I think I just been thinking about writing for quite a while. And um, I, you know, there are a lot of roadblocks that enter your mind when you want to do something like that. It's just like you said, you know, you've always wanted to write a book and I meet people all the time who say, I always wanted to write a book. I meet people like that almost every day of the week. And I always say, well, why don't you write it? Why haven't you written that book yet? Because now it's easier than ever. You know, I self-published, so I didn't have to wait on permission from anyone. But if you want to write a book, you got to write it or it'll never happen. And uh, again, Love Is was such a simple way for me to just go ahead and make that happen. And 2014 just happened to be the year I did that. Okay, so your second book is called This is the Earth, end quote. Why was it important to follow up the first book, Love Is, well, with, with this book, This is the Earth? What, what's so important about this topic? Well, a lot of people hear the title, This is the Earth, and they think it's a book about taking care of the earth, which is interesting because you do have to be careful the titles you pick for your book because they will take on a life of their own. But This is the Earth is really a book about taking care of each other. Hopefully, 
you know, if we take better care of each other, we'll take better care of the earth too. But this is the earth is about the earth as our home. Um, and it's a wonderful book. A lot of my books don't rhyme, but this book actually does rhyme. And again, it's another type of poem. And the book is about teaching children the language of peace. Because I noticed, I also do a lot of work as a therapist in Jefferson County Public Schools, and which is interesting because when I had Jamie as a teacher, I thought I'll never be back in these buildings again. And here I am. So anyway... <laughs> You just never know, you know, life is often full circle. So I thought my whole goal was to get out of JCPS and here I am very much back in it. But kids are not learning how to resolve conflict. They're not learning how to talk to each other. They're not learning that, you know, our culture is very divided right now where everyone believes there is a right or a wrong. And that's just not the truth. You know, it's not accurate. There are many ways that we can see an issue and we all could be working towards the same goal. And kids are just not taught that. They're just not taught how to negotiate or how to listen without listening to get their point across rather than listening to, you know, their fellow human being on the planet's concerns. And I love this book because, again, the imagery, this uh, book was illustrated by an artist from California named Charlene Mosley, who's fantastic. And her artwork is, is equally as beautiful as Erica's. And in this book, there are many scenes that uh, teachers and parents can use to talk with their children about peace and use the mental imagery to help a child remember when they're on the playground or they're in the classroom and a conflict breaks out. There's very practical tips for how to deal with that conflict. One of my favorite images from the book is um, two children playing on the beach and you know how children build sandcastles on the beach. And instead of them building up all of these walls around their sandcastle, the children are building their sandcastle with bridges. So one child is building a bridge from their sandcastle over to the other sandcastle. So obviously that's symbolic. And then there's another image of a seagull that has a six pack soda pop ring around its neck. And for me, that image is representative of Black Lives Matter. If I tell you that I have a six pack ring around my neck and I can't breathe, does that mean that you have to give up sodas for the rest of your life? And that's the way our culture is. Our culture is like, oh, well, if you're telling me that you have the six pack ring around your neck, then you must be telling me that I can't have this thing anymore. And I, I'm not, I'm not going to let you take that away from me. This is America. You're not going to take that away from me. When really, if you will just listen to what I'm trying to explain to you as a fellow human being, there are other ways that we can solve this problem together. So maybe you buy your, your same sodas, but you don't buy it in a six pack. Maybe you buy it in a two liter, or maybe if you buy the six pack, you cut the rings when, which maybe you would have never even thought about had you not met someone like me who was trying to explain to you why the system you use is not ideal for me, but we can both coexist in that system, but you'll never even hear those solutions if you don't take the time to listen to me. So there's just some really simple, beautiful imagery. And obviously these are children's books, so they don't say all of that. But you can use those images and the words in these books to have those kinds of conversations. I think that's very powerful. Yeah, we aim to look for absolutes an awful lot. 
you know, in the absolute sometimes get us in trouble in terms of not listening and thinking, yeah, this is the way it is. I'm right. Mm -hmm. So you followed these two books with several others. How did these two books develop into a series? Did you always intend to do a series? Apparently not, right? No, uh, the series is new. I I wrote all these other books. They're all about love and peace and hope and how to communicate better with one another and how to make better decisions. And the books that I have coming out now this year are the actual series. The others are standalone books. One book I wrote called In the Nick of Time, which has been my most successful book, actually, which is odd because a lot of people say holiday books are so specialized that they won't be your most successful books. But In the Nick of Time is a a Christmas story And I wrote it after uh, Christmas is one of my family's favorite holidays. And every year we would get books and read them together as a family. And one year there just were no more books with African-American characters with a Christmas story to buy. We we had them all, literally. And so if you look for books with white characters, you'll find an endless supply. But that's just not the case when it comes to characters of color. There will be an end to your book collection. So I wrote this book because one of my favorite storylines about any Christmas story or movie is when a child gets to help Santa save the day. And I couldn't find a book like that with a little black boy that got to help Santa save the day. So that book actually ended up really becoming a my best-selling book. And it was featured in Essence and USA Today and a few other places. So all of the other books I have written are all just standalone books. But this year I've written a series which is inspired by the life of my daughter, Kayla Pecchioni, who also went to Brown School for middle school and is now a a Broadway actress. She ended up going to Manual High School to the Youth Performing Arts and uh, majored in dance and minored in musical theater there. And she's now a a Broadway musical star. Wow. So Danny Cummings, you you kind of answered this question, but uh, you might have something else to add here. We at Solutions of Violence focus on different forms of violence. So children experience violence in terms of common bullying. In what ways have you begun to encourage children to take on the challenge of dealing with bullying and more serious trauma as well, like death and divorce? You said, in what ways have I challenged children to take that on? Yes. How have you helped children take on those issues of bullying, more serious trauma as well, like divorce and and death? Mm -hmm. Well, I do work with children a lot, but I also work with parents a whole lot on identifying the severity of bullying and the impacts that it has on kids. Because, you know, this is not a warm and fuzzy topic to talk about, but suicide rates are increasing among children. Uh, We've had some really terrible, tragic stories here in Louisville of very young children making the decision to take their lives. And some of them are so young, you question whether they even have the ability to make that decision. Um, So I work with parents a great deal on identifying warning signs of bullying and trauma and also identifying suicide risk. I also work with teachers in that area too. But what I explain to children over and over and over again is this concept of hope and believing that, yes, I I never tell people what they're telling me is not as bad as it sounds or that they need to toughen up or man up. I never use words like that. That's not helpful and it's not accurate. The truth is we all go through really tragic times in our life. All of us do. And, you know, somebody said you can't get through this life unscathed. And that's the truth. So what do we do to get through today 
hoping that better days are coming. Children need to be involved in activities. And again, this is why I tend to focus on parents a lot. Children need to, to have something that gives them hope and gives them focus. So children need to be involved in activities and they need to know that they can talk with people and they need to have their concerns taken seriously. You know, when I was growing up, if we said we were sad or we were depressed as kids, <laughs> our parents would kind of like, especially grandparents, would kind of like nudge you on the back of the head a little bit and say, you don't have any bills to pay. What do you have to be depressed about? But, you know, <laughs> yeah. That's just not really the case anymore. Children truly are sad. And uh, again, back to the pandemic, um, you know, I, I don't know whether, I don't think it was safe to have kids in school, but at the same time, I know that it has been very tough for our children to not have been in school. So we have a lot to do as a community to make sure that we are giving these children more opportunities and ways that they can literally see hope in their life, or it's going to be really hard for them to learn to process what they're going through and look forward to tomorrow. Yes. Aditi, you began getting your books out there by self-publishing. It has to be an incredibly brave and, and risky challenge to take. Why did you decide to publish your books on your own? I published my first book when I was, I think I was 44. So Jamie, it's not too late. <laughs> you could still do it. It's never too late to do what you want to do. And I think because I wanted to write a book since I was in my 20s, by the time I did it 20 years later, I just didn't want to wait anymore. And if you do a lot of research like I did on publishing, you just hear so many discouraging stories of um, people reaching out to agents or to publishers and never hearing back. You know, they reach out to them and they wait two months, they wait three months, they wait six months. Maybe after six months, they hear something. Maybe after six months, they never hear something. And then when they do hear something, sometimes the publisher wants you to change your story. They like the concept, but not the way it's written. They might want you to take out something altogether. They might want you to add something you don't care to talk about. In the case of children's books, they often, almost always, pick your illustrator and direct the illustrator on what the images should look like too. So I think waiting 20 years to write a book and then finally deciding to do it and knowing that those would be the kind of hurdles I'd have to jump to get an idea in my head out in the world on paper just didn't sound appealing to me. So I didn't want to wait. I um, found out how to self-publish my books, which is easier now than ever. I remember when I was growing up, if you wanted to publish a book, there were these, they called them the big five publishing houses, and you pretty much had to go through one of them or your book never saw the light of day. And now you can publish on your own really easily. The biggest challenge I would say is that because you are not with a publishing house, you don't have an editor, you know, in-house that's going to look over your book. You don't have someone who's giving you feedback about the way the cover looks. You know, you don't have that team of people around you, but you can find those people pretty easily now. On social media, there is a strong community of writers. If you're on Twitter, you can go to hashtag writing community. And you can meet all kinds of cool writers. And a lot of those people are very willing to give you tips and answer questions. A lot of them are willing to read what you write. So, you know, never, ever, ever self-publish and don't have people read what you write. But it was very risky. But I think because I had waited so long, I was just ready to do that. And I didn't want to wait and let the fate of my books be in the hands of someone else. So waiting in some cases are probably an advantage. 
but don't in wait, some cases don't wait too long <laughs> yeah right in some cases definitely i don't i wouldn't say that i would never publish with a traditional publisher i definitely would be open to it and i don't think that people should not try that route I just think for me at the stage I was in, it was best for me to proceed this way because my vision was so clear and I didn't want someone to tell me, you know, how I should go about it. But yeah, I mean, there there are multiple routes now to publishing books and you should find the one that's best for you. Okay, so D.D. Cummings, what, what kind of revenue does it take to publish a book? How do you go about getting that, raising that revenue? Well, that was another thing that was good about me waiting till I was in my 40s was I've worked a long time. So I was a little bit more financially stable than I would have been if I wanted to do this in my 20s. And and that and then some people are when they want to write a book at a younger age. Some people have to traditionally publish because their dream wouldn't come to life if they didn't have that whole team behind them. But I, uh, you know, this is my hobby. My husband plays competitive softball. All my kids play sports. My daughter dance. All those things cost a lot of money. And my daughter wasn't in dance anymore. And my husband wasn't playing competitive softball anymore. And so we just use some of those funds to fund my books. The big series I have coming out right now, I did a Kickstarter campaign for, which was a very interesting concept. Some people haven't heard of Kickstarter, but it's kind of like a, but everybody's heard of GoFundMe. And so it's kind of like a GoFundMe in a way, but for artists and for tech people. And so if you have something that's really cool and like these traditional gatekeepers kind of keep you from getting your idea out into the world, you can write your vision up in a proposal and post it to Kickstarter. And as long as you have a real product to produce, Kickstarter will approve your project and you can raise money that way. So a children's book series is very expensive. It costs more. We we raised $40,000 pledged by over 250 backers. And that still won't cover the entire cost of publishing five children's books. That's just what we needed to get it done. So that'll kind of give you an idea of how expensive it is. Okay. So along with the expenses of publishing, there's another hurdle. How do you advertise your product? And how do you advertise your books and go about doing this? How do you get people to know about what you have done? I have a website. Actually, I have two. I recommend that you have at least one website if you're interested in writing a book, but you haven't written it yet. I would at least try to get your website with your name if you can still get it. If your name is Jim Johnson, you probably can't get that website anymore. But maybe if your name is Dee Dee Cummings or Jamie McMillan, you can get that website and you should get it today. Because the website is one of the most important things that you need as a writer, because what's the first thing people do now? I don't know if you all do this, but the first thing that people do now when they're when they hear a name is Google that person. And so you want your website, preferably with your name, to come up as one of those top Google hits. If you can't get Jim Johnson, get author Jim Johnson or the Jim Johnson or write with Jim Johnson or Jim Johnson writer dot com, something like that so that people can find you. Oh, okay, Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So that's one of the most important things you can do. And then a lot of people hate social media. I really do not like 
social media, but it's a necessary evil. I have to be on it. So a lot of people do find out about me on social media and buy my books um, that way. It is good to connect with a writing community because nobody supports you like another writer because they know what you're going through. And a lot of my work is shared by other authors. And then I, in turn, share uh, the work of other authors. On my Kickstarter campaign, I backed like five or six authors on their campaigns and probably more than that backed me on mine. Um, that's the kind of community it is. So that's another good way to spread the word about your books. But the number one way I sell books is in person. That is the top way I sell books. Oh, my books are also in Carmichael's. I have to give a thanks to Carmichael's for allowing my books to be in their store because that's a local bookstore, iconic bookstore, historic, really, bookstore here in Louisville, Kentucky. And so I appreciate them allowing my books to be in their store. But the number one way I sell books is, is, in, is in person. And so I've gone to some festivals and some fairs and things like that, schools, meetings, Jack and Jill of America. I've gone to some of their things and they buy my books. And so I founded the Louisville Book Festival because Louisville didn't have a, a large citywide comprehensive book festival that was that was just for authors to sell their books. And so the Louisville Book Festival will be held. It was held last year for the first time. And we had to hold it online because of the pandemic. And it'll be held this year on, I can't believe I'm getting the dates confused with last year. <laughs> It'll be held this year at the Kentucky International Convention Center on October 22nd and 23rd. And if you're a, a local writer and you want to sell books, the best way is to join the Louisville Book Festival and uh, come sell your books in person. By far, authors sell many more books in person than they do online. Okay. Dee, we recently interviewed two authors of children's books who were that have had some success. They are, are not only books for for these by these authors, but uh, seemingly other books around. You know, all over. If you go online, you see all kinds. Of, there's quite a selection. So, what made you feel like you could be competitive in, in in a large market like this? Well, there were two things. One is there was this meme I shared on social media that was something like, you know, another like demon that writers have in their heads. I already shared with you earlier, but is, you know, who is going to want to really read what I have to say? Who's going to care what I have to say? Does anybody care what I have to say but me? And the bottom line is there have been lots of books written in the past, but never was one written by you. And so your voice is important. It doesn't matter if 10,000 books a day come out, mine will be one of them. And my voice is unique. So that's one reason I continue to write, even though it is, there is a large market. The other reason is because I have quite a specialty niche. I am a therapist. I have worked with families and children for more than two decades. I have seen coping skill techniques and conflict resolution skills that actually work that I weave throughout my books. And so I, I do have an authority on the subjects that I share because of my education, my background and my work experience. And I know that my books are unique because when people read them, they tell me that they're unique and they're different and that it's a voice they haven't heard before. So that motivates me to continue to write. Do you keep certain things in mind to approach children that's different from adults? You said that you include or you have adults who read your books. Mm -hmm. 
when you're focusing on children, do you, there have got to be some things that are interesting to children, maybe not to adults. Um, I love writing for children. I know this isn't exactly your question, but I'll get to it. I love writing for children because children have this imagination that is just um, amazing. And when you have that imagination, you know, when you believe you can fly, even though you know you can't really fly, but when you believe you can, you are able to accomplish these miraculous things that you probably wouldn't even have tried if you didn't believe you could fly. And um, so I love writing for children because they believe certain things. They, they have a magic and a, a miraculous spirit that we all need to be reminded of. And so even though I write largely for children, I think that it touches the hearts and the minds and the spirits of adults, because it reminds adults of things we've lost. We've lost the hope of a child. We've lost the magic of Christmas. We've lost the ability to believe that we can fly. And so we don't do a lot of things as adults because we have this rational voice that comes in. I use rational in rabbit quotes um, because I think we limit ourselves because we lose that, that magic hope that children have. Yeah, some of the things I've read are that children are more open to new things. They're still learning, you know, and so they're not weighted down by all what we were talking about, the absolutes that we were mentioning earlier. Yes. That's interesting that, that adults then they get to get to see some of the things that they've lost, maybe, and they can maybe dream again. Yes. So did he coming so we know uh, parents are involved in, in deciding what books are children read. So there, there are pitfalls and challenges for parents because of this decision they have to make. The recent decision to stop publishing Dr. Seuss books raises an interesting question here. What is now acceptable may not be acceptable in the future. Books that are now acceptable may be deemed in the future material not suitable for kids. So how do you deal with this? How do you convince parents that your books should be their choice for their children. How do you address the issue in your writing? I don't really try to convince parents that my books are the best choice for their children. I just write and put the messages out there and the messages happen to resonate with some people. So I don't really spend time trying to convince people, but I don't believe that I will have the problem with my books that one day they won't be suitable because I think that whenever you are writing with the intention to be inclusive and then you intentionally hire an inclusive and diverse team to help you achieve that mission, you are probably not going to end up with an issue like what we see now uh, is happening with the Dr. Seuss books. I loved Dr. Seuss growing up, and uh, I know that all of his books aren't considered to be inappropriate, but definitely some of them are. And I think that this is really the danger when you don't surround yourself with inclusive people. This is why if you're going to self-publish, you really need other people to read your work and it can't be your mother and it shouldn't be your spouse. You know, you, you need to get inclusive team of people around you. There was just a big brouhaha on Facebook just last week because Oberlin College held a music night where they were doing a tribute to Black artists and on the flyer they put out they had all white musicians as a tribute to Black History Month, which a lot of people just found incredulous. Had they had any diversity on the team that put that program together, that never would have happened. And so I guess 
if you want to be sure that your books don't end up on one of those piles one day in the future, that's one of the best ways you can go about it. First of all, be a good human and not stereotype people and stereotypical and caricature-like images of people and tell the story that you have to tell. And if there is something in there that could be offensive, make sure it's explained. You know, it, it's not like you'll never write a book with anything inflammatory if you're telling a story, but the story should have a purpose and the purpose should be for us all to learn. So if you want to make sure your books don't end up on one of those piles one day, like some of Dr. Seuss's books are, that would be my advice for trying to avoid that kind of scrutiny in the future. Sure. Well, let's look at one of your other special books you mentioned earlier. What about this one, uh, Kayla, A Modern Day Princess? I think this, uh, this one deals with a very important topic for you and perhaps should be one for all of us. Tell us about Kayla and her story. This is probably, uh, people have, with all of my other books, people always ask me, which is your favorite book? And I always say it's like you're, you know, saying which is your favorite child. You know, you just can't identify which child is your favorite. You love them all equally, but you love different things about each one. And so all my previous books have been like that. But Kayla, A Modern Day Princess may end up being my favorite. First of all, it's the first series I've ever done. And it is the series that we did the Kickstarter for. That was the project. Uh, the Kickstarter project was to back this series because it's very expensive putting out five children's books in one year. And we are releasing them by rapid release, which is an Amazon marketing concept. Uh, that's another way to market your books um, is to list them on Amazon and take advantage of some of the algorithms that Amazon uses. Like one of their top algorithms is if you are a prolific writer, meaning you put out a new book uh, within 30 days, you can do what's called a rapid release and it helps you be listed at near the top when people search for the kind of books you write. It helps you be easier to discover on Amazon. So that's what I'm doing with this Kayla series. It's a, inspired by my daughter who went to youth performing arts school here in Louisville and um, majored in dance and minored in musical theater and now is an actress um, on Broadway. Um, she was here, if anybody saw Book of Mormon, when it came to town, I think it was two years ago, Kayla Pecchioni was the lead Nabalungi in the Book of Mormon. And that was a really exciting event. I just couldn't believe when that Broadway tour came to Louisville and we got to see our own child up on that stage in the Kentucky Center for the Arts. That was very exciting. But Kayla has a really interesting story about being a young Black girl in the performing arts world. You know, performing arts is a field that will tear you up, chew you up and spit you out. It's a highly competitive field and it's difficult oftentimes for minorities to be cast in lead roles. So it's a very inspiring story about a young girl that has a dream and everybody has a plan for her of who she should be and what she should do with her life. And in the end, she gets to decide what she's going to do with her life. What are the conflicts that you see in Kayla's experience? You mentioned some of those. Are there other conflicts that, that uh, you had to deal with? Um, there's one overall conflict of just how society perceives her and the pressure that society puts on her. And, but there are lots of other smaller conflicts um, throughout, uh, largely that just have to do more with expectations of people, uh, difficulty with uh, casting and um, uh, difficulty just being in the performing arts in general. But the bigger message here and the one that I really want people to take away is not really within the pages of the books. The bigger message is that 
we are still highly segregated as the human race. I don't really believe in the black race or the white race. And maybe that's because my parents were classified as black and white. A lot of people don't know that race is just a social construct. It's not a real thing. And when I try to tell people this, (laughs) it like blows people's minds. They're like, what do you mean? Race is not a real thing. It's a very real thing. It was on my census form. That's how real it is. (laughs) Like, no, black and white is a made up concept. It's like the McDonald's arches. Somebody made up the McDonald's arches. Black and white is a social construct. It's not a real thing. But Because these concepts have become so important in our society and everyone categorizes, you know, a lot of times you'll tell a story and someone will say, well, were they black or were they white? I mean, that's just how important it is for us to know who it is we're dealing with or who it is we're hearing a story about. And so because it's so important in our society, I have made it my mission to make sure that more families see children of color in books, because seeing children of any background, different backgrounds from ours, humanizes us to each other. So that when you're in the store and you see someone who has to rely on a wheelchair, or you see someone who's even overweight, or you see someone who's a different shade, a different skin tone than you, you know, your child is not saying for the first person, mom, why is that person skin brown? Or why is that person in that chair? Or, you know, these concepts should be introduced to children before they hit school. And so I always say that social justice sometimes can be as simple as an act of buying some books and donating them to a family that doesn't have any books or donating them to a local school or a daycare or a barbershop where they cut kids' hair, um, which is an actual program here in Louisville. I just don't think that the first time that some kids see a child who looks different from them should be when they enter the school system. And, you know, maybe even then you may not see someone who looks different from you, just depending on what school you enter. So one of my sayings associated with this Kayla series that I love is that reading books with characters who look like you builds your esteem, but reading books with characters who look like our world builds your empathy. And that's really what the overall Kayla series, that's the conflict I really want to address. Okay, yeah. Uh, Maria Martinez in her book, Genealogical Fiction, explains, along with lots of biologists who support her position, there is no genealogical, biological difference between people with dark skin and people with light-colored skin. Mm-hmm. So you're right. It's, it's a concept that white supremacists made up in order to justify their supreme position, which they achieved at the point of a gun. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. You know this, Didi, but some authorities say children don't see color. So books with racial differences that, that are obvious, are probably easier for them to, to read and understand and accept because it's, it's kind of their, their, their world, right? Yes, it will just become a part of their world. And You know, children obviously know that a child's skin looks different from theirs. That's why sometimes they say, why is that child's skin brown? But they don't see differences in terms of as an adult, you know, we might look if if you're an opposite race, 
you might look at an adult and say, there's no way we can be related, but a child will think, you know, we've all seen these things on social media where these beautiful little white kids and little brown kids want the same haircut, even though they don't have the same type of hair, their hair is not going to lay the same, but they want the same haircut because they're brothers. But as adults, you know, we, we, we think that's impossible. So children do see color. What they don't see is the difference. We see as adults, we see color and we see difference. Oh, you're black. So you must think this or you're white. So you must think that as children, we see that our friend's skin looks different from ours. We don't care. Okay. As you know, Jim and I are are former teachers and school teachers. And and there's one book I have to know about. The title is Think About This. (laughs) How is it you came onto this idea? I love that story because it's directly related to the work that I do with children. We as humans have a tendency to catastrophize everything. You know, we think that if something bad has happened, that's it. The whole day is shot. You know, we'll never have this opportunity again. My whole life is over. And so this is a a technique in cognitive behavioral therapy called reframing, where you take an incident that looks bad and you make the best of it. So one of the stories in there is about a little girl who has this favorite dress and she dances and she twirls in it so much and wears it every day. She loves it. Her grandmother gave it to her and it has one tear in it and she lets it ruin her entire day and she throws the dress in the garbage and the mother retrieves the dress from the garbage and teaches the young girl how to fix it and shows her, you know, this dress is even better now because we were able to add this special touch that wasn't on it before. And then there's a few stories in there. There are little vignettes in this, think about it like this. But but what that whole book is about is when something happens that looks like it is the worst thing in the world, how can you put a different spin on it to, you know, make it a situation that works for you? And this happens a lot to kids, you know, they, uh, a party gets canceled, or they have to stay home from school one day, you know, there's plenty of scenarios we could go through, but working with kids to understand how they can make the best of situations that, that they're not happy about. Maybe in our explorations of solutions to violence, we're about finding and resolving conflict uh, without violence, without physical violence, particularly Mm -hmm. political unrest and violence has been a part of U.S. history, but given the access to web and other media, children are certainly more aware of things that happened historically and especially recently, like the events in Washington, D.C., perhaps other things that they've observed, but how have your books addressed the issues of war, the consequences of make, and, and how to make peace with people in other nations? My books don't uh, directly address the issue of war, but definitely as a people across the globe, we are extremely lacking in the skill of conflict resolution and how to understand each other's positions without resulting to violence. And I can give you a a funny quick little story about when I was in my 20s and still a knucklehead because I was young, I was in LAX airport and there were these large circular tables, huge circle tables in the food court area. I, I was waiting. I'd already checked in and I was waiting for my flight. And I sat at one of those tables and the food court wasn't crowded at all. So there were, I'm just going to guess, there were like 30 tables and like half of them were open with no one sitting at the table. And the rest of them had one or two people 
people sitting at the table. So I sit at this table by myself and I spread out my stuff. I'm going to work while I'm waiting on my flight. And a woman who appeared to be from Africa, I'm pretty sure she was from Africa, just, you know, by her dress. And, uh, and I heard her talking on the phone and she sounded like she was from Africa, but she comes and she sits at that table with me. And I was so put out by that. I looked around, like obviously looked around so she could kind of see me looking around like there's other tables open <laughs> and I couldn't understand why she came and she sat at that table with me. And I was just so like beside myself. And I don't now, you know, 20 years later, I'm embarrassed by this story. But this is a real story that happened. And it's an example of how this kind of conquering, you know, mentality takes over all of us, even, you know, the warmest of, I've always been a kind of a warm person. So even somebody like me, who's pretty warm and welcoming, even for me, I was just like, why is this lady sitting at my table? This is my table. Go get your own table. And I think that this is, I think that this is a very American way of thinking. I think that probably in different cultures, it would almost be rude to sit, to not sit with you at your table. There is another human being there and you join that human being. She didn't come and sit right next to me. She sat opposite me at that table. I always think back on that when I think about what we can do better to prepare young children for the future, because these will be the children who will lead us. These are the children who one day will be responsible for voting in the people who vote, whether we go to war or not. So I try to work with kids on that early on level to, again, try to teach them the language of peace. Peace is a language and our children are not taught. Uh, another real quick example, I'm a therapist and a child set a trash can on fire at school one day and he was very angry and very upset and wouldn't talk to anybody. And it took him a month to tell me that he set that trash can on fire because he was angry. Imagine if we had taught him to just tell us he was angry from the beginning. So these are like the kind of novel concepts that I'm trying to work on to teach children how to communicate so that they don't feel like violence is their only option. We can't, we all share this planet. We all can be better listeners. And we all should be resorting to peaceful solutions instead of resorting to violence. But unfortunately, our practice has not been to teach the next generation how to talk in this way. So we're almost out of time, Dee Dee. Mm -hmm. But how about telling us about one of your books uh, we have we've missed or one that, that we have already covered, but maybe maybe that's your favorite. What, what have we missed here? Well, some of the books I think that are really neat that we haven't talked about are that I have two like coloring books slash workbooks. And I think they're very helpful for kids to work through some of their feelings. The thing I love the most about these coloring books is that they're not just coloring books. They're actual real books. You can read them like a book from cover to cover. It has a, a full story, but it has activities that you can work on along the way and things you can color, which is can be a very calming technique. So I try to teach kids and adults coping skills because, you know, I think the older you get, the harder it is for you to practice those coping skills. And there are lots of exercises in both books to remind you of how special you are. So each of us is special. It's not, you know, just one person in a classroom or half of the classroom, every child in a classroom, every member of a family, every person in your church, everyone you go to school with, everyone at your job, each one of us is special and 
for some reason, these messages just really get lost. And I think we really need to hammer them home to children so that they grow up knowing that they're special and unique. And each one of us has a place here. Like, what is it that you were sent here to vibrate out into the universe? So that's two of the things, two of the books we haven't talked about are my coloring books. One is called If a Caterpillar Can Fly, Why Can't I? Again, it kind of goes back to that concept of children believing that they can do miraculous things and we lose that as an adult. And the other one is called Like Rainwater. And it's a, a tribute to my mom who taught me how to deal with people in a compassionate manner. Where do you go from here, Dee? Uh, you've, you've already had created a website uh, on it. You have pins for the, a shirt or a hat with the book name, COVID masks. And uh, you're <laughs> on them like spread kindness, not germs. And uh, it's mm-hmm. cool. What's on your plate now? More books? Other pursuits? This year, I am trying to get out this five-part Kayla series. That's pretty much all I'm going to do for all of 2021. And well, in addition to the Louisville Book Festival in October, but I have some help doing that. I'm doing the books largely on my own, but the, the Louisville Book Festival will be held in October. And because the Kayla series is about a Broadway performer, my overall dream would be to try to turn that series into a Broadway show of its own. But I do understand what a miraculous hurdle that is, but I'm going to try. So that'll be what I'm working on in 2022. Okay, so Didi Cummings, how would our listeners purchase your books? Are they in libraries, in school libraries? Where do you go if you want? Uh, yeah, JCPS has been very supportive of me, Jefferson County Public Schools. They've bought a lot of my books. And so um, every elementary school has my Christmas book, In the Nick of Time by Didi Cummings. Louisville Free Public Library has my books. Carmichael's has my books. And if you can go to Carmichael's, I will go there because we need to support local businesses. And Carmichael's is just a long time, really legendary business in Louisville that we need to make sure continues. And I want to thank everybody in the pandemic who came out strong for Carmichael's because they had a really great support, especially early on in the pandemic. But you can also buy my books on my website, which is makeawaymedia.com. Make awaymedia.com or ddcummings.com. Either website, you can purchase my books on there. Well, in the next few minutes uh, we have left, would you share some suggestions with uh, listeners who want to become an author? Yeah. Again, get connected to some other people. Try not to be in a vacuum. Do some research, whether you do want to go through a traditional publisher or whether you want to self-publish. There's nothing wrong with either route. Also, I can't stress strongly enough about getting a website. It's fairly cheap to get websites. People need to be able to find you. When people hear you have a book, that's the first thing they're going to do is they're going to enter your name in Google or as my father says, the Google. (laughs) They're going to go to the Google and they're going to try to find you and your book and you want to make sure people can find you. And you don't have to have anything on your website, but a picture of your book and a description of your book, and maybe how to contact you. You um, don't even honestly have to be able to sell your book on your website, although that would be a good idea. You can have a contact link where people email you and they can, you know, buy your book directly from you. But the number one piece of advice is to write. You have to write and it doesn't have to be, you know, this huge, gigantic, novel. But if you have a story in your head or on your heart, 
it's there for a reason. And you should just sit down and just write until you can't write anymore. And then you should step away from it. And then you should sit down and you should write some more until you feel like you've said what you wanted to say. And then type it up and then have some people look at it. It costs a lot to publish children's books because illustrations are very expensive and color printing is very expensive. But it is not very expensive at all to self-publish a, a, a regular manuscript, a book with that's just black and white with no pictures. So if you've been wanting to do it, if, if you hear me talking today and you've been wanting to write a book, get started now because you you will every year you will think I should have written that book the year before. And those years are only going to continue to keep going. So um, sit down and, and, and start writing. And almost every author you ask for author advice will tell you that. That's the biggest hurdle. Start writing. Children's book author and Louisville native, Dee Dee Cummings. It's been our pleasure to have you with us on Solutions to Violence. We want to thank you for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the time. To our listeners, you can catch up with us again tomorrow, March 16th at 8 a.m. and Wednesday, March 17th at 6 a.m. You can also listen live stream if you visit us at Forward Radio and choose Listen Live Now. The program featuring Dee Dee Cummings will be placed in our archives Wednesday, March 17th. To listen through our archives, visit Forward Radio website, forwardradio.org. Choose program archives and then Solutions to Violence program that features global children's book author Dee Dee Cummings. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise, delight you, and even challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org. You'll find a wealth of offerings. For the broadcast schedule, choose programs to enjoy being a supporter of Forward Radio WFMP 106.5 FM. It's Louisville, Kentucky, grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station, empowering new voices to create vital programming heard nowhere else. Please send your thoughts and suggestions to us at solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. Even though WFMP is run entirely by volunteers, it is it does require a revenue stream to keep the lights on, pay for the equipment, and the license renewals. Our pledge drives begins March 22nd and ends April 9th. To make a donation, just go to our website and click on Donate. This year, Forward Radio is gifting a variety of gifts as a token of our appreciation for your generosity and your donation. The gifts are listed on our website. Your generous donation is greatly appreciated. Also, April 10th marks our fourth anniversary. April 10th, WFMP will celebrate four years of broadcasting here in Louisville. As part of our celebration, we are conducting a virtual talent show. If you've got a talent you'd like to share, anything you can perform, recite, or demonstrate qualifies. We'd love to hear from you. Our Zoom audience will decide the winner of the talent contest, and the winner will receive $100 cash prize. You must submit your application before March 20th. To enter the contest, just go to our website, and under Fourth Birthday Celebration, click on the underlined text. The link will provide the details. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Thank you for joining us today.